Thank you, Tim. What a joy and honor it is for me to be back here. After spending the summer of 2000 here teaching, this became sort of a second academic home. And I was also privileged with the great grace of celebrating the 30th anniversary of Christendom in Rome with Tim and Kathy and so many others. And so when I got the invitation to come and deliver the first in a series of lectures on St. Paul, I found that to be utterly irresistible. And since I was working on a manuscript dealing with a guide to the thought of St. Paul, well, I just, I just figured I could draw from all of that. At the time, it was about 15, maybe 18 pages in rough draft. It has now grown to be about 60 pages. I promise not to read it tonight. <laughs> but I am going to work with the five-part outline that I have as the table of contents for this manuscript, A Guide to the Thought of St. Paul. I want to begin by focusing upon his calling and conversion. And then secondly, I would like to consider what he calls the word of the cross, Christ crucified. Thirdly, I'd like to consider his discovery of the body of Christ, resurrected as well as ecclesial. And then if time permits, we want to look at the gospel according to St. Paul as he came to understand the righteousness of God and the marriage of justice and mercy at the cross. And again, if time permits and I have my doubts, we're also going to want to consider what it means to live the life of Christ as the fifth and final segment. But I want to begin also by just commenting upon St. Paul as he has been for Catholics, especially in view of an article that appeared two weeks ago in the Catholic News Service, where a famous Catholic biblical scholar who taught for many years at Catholic University, Father Raymond Collins, spoke of how St. Paul's letters have received mostly lip service by most preachers and scholars in the Catholic tradition for a few centuries. Why? Well, part of the problem, he points out, was Martin Luther, the 16th century leader of the Protestant Reformation, who drew heavily from scripture, but mostly from St. Paul and his letters to the Romans and Galatians especially. And so this led many Catholics to feel that scripture was Protestant and especially St. Paul's letters were particular danger, according to Father Collins. And so as a result, he concluded, the apostles' teachings didn't really enter into our Catholic thinking, our Catholic consciousness, although in recent years, the apostles' letters have been getting much more attention from Catholic scholars and theologians and preachers, and especially from our beloved Pope Benedict. Now, I can understand that description, and I can also concur with it in my own experience, but it reminds me of a statement made by the late, great Frank Sheed in a, uh, a foreword that he wrote to Monsignor Knox's book. He wrote, and I quote, the Protestant attack on Catholic dogmas did not, after the shock of the attack, destroy Catholic attachment to the dogmas, but it most certainly sensibly weakened Catholic attachment to the Bible. Why? Because a man can never feel quite the same about even the nicest book if he has just been beaten around the head with it. <laughs> but, again, to quote Pope Benedict, who was quoting St. Jerome, who will be celebrating tomorrow, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. And coming to know Christ through the scriptures is a very good way to dive into the very heart of our Catholic faith. 
It's hard for me this evening to distill the material that I wish to present around the theme, the gospel according to St. Paul. I have a rather large personal library, and so when I went to draw from the resources available, I discovered that there was far too much. In fact, I went ahead and counted, and I have over 25 shelves of books about St. Paul and his letters. About 95% of them are written, not surprisingly perhaps, by non-Catholics, especially Protestants. And so when we approach St. Paul as Catholics, I think we have to be really honest and admit that there is a sort of gap, and we have to overcome it, and we can do so especially in this year. Why? Well, certainly Scripture is the most influential book in the life of the Church, and the New Testament is the most important part of that book. And St. Paul's writings comprise a significant portion. At least 13 have been attributed to him, and I tend to go with the tradition in even seeing Hebrews as something that originated from Paul, at least in some sense. But Paul's writings are not only the most profound there in the New Testament, they're also the most difficult. As our first pope reminded us, we read in 2 Peter 3.14 about how our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. And he goes on to describe how there are things that are difficult to understand in his writings which the unstable twist to their own, to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So not only does Peter regard Paul as a beloved brother, but he practically implies that his writings are on the same level as the other scriptures. But quite frankly, he puts his finger on something that is so obvious. There are many things difficult to understand in them which the unstable twist to their own destruction. That is the understatement of the New Testament. And so we have to look upon Paul before we just consider his thought. One writer calls him the most thoroughly converted man in Christian history. And another one writes that Paul was such a great apostle precisely because Saul was such a great persecutor. And he describes how God redirected and harnessed all of the energies of Saul the persecutor to launch Paul the great apostle to the Gentiles. And yet in recent years, surprisingly, Paul's own conversion has been called into question. Why is that surprising? Because since Martin Luther, Paul is the paradigm of the convert falling off his horse there on the road to Damascus when he sees a great light. But there is a need to revisit this picture that we have of Paul's conversion. For one thing, none of the three accounts of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts, chapters 9, 22, or 26, mention anything about a horse. Falling off a horse only emerges in early medieval uh, artwork, and so we can certainly justify going back and questioning some matters about this Damascus Road experience. But what I find to be most interesting is that in the last 40 years, not Catholic, but Protestant biblical scholars are the ones who've caused us to revisit Paul and rethink many misunderstandings of Paul that are rooted in Luther's own misreading. For example, back in the 60s, one of the top-ranking New Testament scholars in the world, Professor Christer Stendhal, then New Testament professor at Harvard, now a Lutheran archbishop in Scandinavia, wrote an article that shook the Protestant world on Paul and the introspective conscience of the West. And what he sought to overturn was what he called a Lutheran misreading of Paul. 
arguing that Paul did not suffer from a bad conscience the way Luther did as an Augustinian monk. It wasn't finding the gospel of free grace through faith alone. Stendhal points out that when Paul describes his own experience as a Pharisee in Philippians 3, he has a very robust conscience. He describes how, according to the righteousness found in the law, I was blameless. And so Stendhal actually denies the fact that Saul was converted. He argues that instead, Saul was called by the Lord Jesus. Why? Because to be converted for Stendhal means to leave one religion for another. And that's exactly what Saul didn't do. He simply embraced a fuller version of his own Jewish faith by coming to recognize that the Messiah had come, died, and rose again. So called, not converted, was the daring thesis of Professor Stendhal. And it's still being discussed to this day. And then the next decade, the 1970s, saw another prominent New Testament scholar from the Protestant tradition, E.P. Sanders, tackle the Lutheran misreading of Judaism. That Judaism was, in the first century, essentially the same kind of legalism that the medieval Catholic faith was in the 16th century at the time of the Reformation. E.P. Sanders showed us in the 70s in his famous book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, that back then, it wasn't a contractual, legalistic, works righteousness religion. Instead, it was a religion of grace. Jews saw the covenant not as something that they had to work themselves into through obedience, but as a gift of grace. You keep the law not to get in, he said, but in order to stay in, much like a family. And so he overcame centuries of misunderstanding about Judaism. And then within the next decade or so, N.T. Wright came along and began to rehabilitate this Lutheran misreading of Paul's gospel, rooted, as he put it, in a mistaken notion of individualism that Paul would never recognize, because Paul's own grounding was in the Jewish covenant traditions, and the covenant was not a contract between individuals, but an interpersonal bond of kinship, of family communion. And so N.T. Wright went so far as to say that the gospel of Paul which speaks of justification by faith, is not simply an individualistic experience of accepting Jesus. Rather, justification consists of being constituted a member of the family of God, unquote. So the last 40 years have seen a spectacular turnaround in Protestant scholarship. And the Catholic scholars, I, I would say, are still lagging a way bit behind. So is it true to say that Paul was not converted from one religion to another. Well, yes, I think we can, we can say with Stendhal that Paul is not the paradigm of that sort of conversion. But I would like to propose that Paul was both called and converted, not from one religion, Judaism to a different one, Christianity, but from a naturalistic understanding of the Jewish faith to a truly supernatural experience of the divine grace and righteousness of God through Christ. And so in order to address this, we have to ask ourselves the question, what was it that caused Saul the Pharisee to persecute the church and to reject Christ? And to make this short, I'm going to identify three primary problems that Saul would have had with Christ and the early Christian movement. The first one is rather straightforward. And that is, Jesus considered himself to be equal with God, and that is blasphemy. You can go back to John chapter 5, verse 12, 
after Jesus has healed the cripple on the Sabbath, and when confronted, he goes on to say that he is simply doing what his father was doing. And so we read that the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only healed on the Sabbath, but he made himself equal with God by calling God Father. I think Saul would have shared that conviction that this is no small error. This is virtually blasphemous. The second problem that Saul probably had with Christ in the early Christian movement was the antinomian spirit that he perceived, that somehow Jesus set aside the law, at least as it was understood and interpreted by the Pharisees. And not only with respect to the Sabbath, but also with respect to purity and meals and what constituted defilement. And perhaps most memorably, what he had to say about the temple, in particular on the occasion of his cleansing of the temple, when confronted with the officials who demanded a sign to authorize such an action, he said, destroy this temple and in three days rebuild it. Words that came back to haunt him when the false accusers accused him in front of Pilate of preparing to destroy the temple. The third and final reason that we can summarize here has to do with the very death that Jesus experienced. He wasn't simply executed. He was crucified. And Saul knew the passage in the Law of Moses, Deuteronomy 21, 26, which reads, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So it's almost as though God validated the Pharisees' verdict by seeing that Jesus was crucified there on a tree, thus confirming the judgment that he himself was accursed. And so these are profound misunderstandings. And to turn from these to embrace Christ and the early Christian movement is certainly something of a conversion. Now that we've considered this issue of his own calling and conversion, though, I would like to focus upon what Paul later describes as the word of the cross, Christ crucified. And in particular, I would like to focus upon a text that Professor Michael Gorman describes as Paul's master story. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians 2. If you're a cradle Catholic, just follow along. <laughs> I apologize. I resolve not to say that. This is arguably the most important text in Paul's writings concerning his own understanding of Christ. And it really captures the profound reversal that would have taken place in the mind of Saul after the Damascus Road that came to the light in the mind of Paul. We read in Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, the Greek word for form is morphe, very strong, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's that phrase, equality with God. Precisely the bone of contention for the Pharisees who agreed with the verdict that he would die and agreed with the conclusion that having died on the cross, it confirmed his accursed status for claiming equality with God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's a very difficult Greek word to translate that is rendered grasped in the RSVCE. The Greek word is harpagmos. It's what scholars identify as a hapax legomenon. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. 
and you're hard-pressed to find a single instance of it in any pre-Christian material. Only in the later 1st, 2nd, and 3rd centuries do we find the term used. And so after much diligent research, scholars like Wright, Gorman, and others have concluded the best translation is probably that he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited for personal advantage, the way that so many leaders, rulers, and politicians take advantage of their own power. So though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. That Greek word for emptying is very important, kenosis. We'll return to that. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, that is spoken of as a Christ hymn. Some think that Paul borrowed it. Others think that he actually penned it. In any case, what it really shows us is the transformation, dare I say conversion, that took place within his mind and heart. Equality with God was justification for persecuting him. And then now, equality with God is precisely what the cross displays. Because this text has been variously read and misunderstood. Most people assume that when Paul is speaking about how he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, that what he's really doing is he's sort of divesting himself of divinity, much like someone would hold their breath. That, in fact, divine glory consists in the previous domination of creatures that he temporarily suspended. But, in fact, Paul is pointing to something, something much profounder than that. He did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited for his own personal advantage. What exactly does Paul mean? Well, again, I refer to the work of N.T. Wright and of others, and what Wright and Gorman and other scholars like Hawthorne have shown is that there on the cross, what Jesus Christ is doing is revealing the true nature of God's greatness, that Christ's death is itself a revelation of God's love in action. It's not simply a new view of Jesus for Paul, but a whole new understanding of God. Calvary reveals to Paul in his conversion graces the truth of what it means to be God, the truth of what it means for Christ to have been equal with God from all eternity. And so the resurrection is not just God vindicating an innocent man. It isn't just simply resuscitating a corpse. The resurrection of Jesus is God the Father endorsing Jesus' interpretation of what it means to be equal with God. It means to take your life and make it a gift of love in pouring it out for others. In short, for Paul, Jesus was doing in his human life, and most especially there on the cross, in time, what God does from all eternity making divine life a gift of love that is shared by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the incarnation and death of Jesus really was a revelation of the inner life and true glory of God, the God of Israel. What was accomplished in his obedience and death then 
was the outworking of the very character of God, not simply the revelation of divine love, but a communication of that to our human nature and through Christ into our world. And so this master story that Paul offers us in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, helps us to understand the very hinge on which he converts from Phariseeism to the Christian movement to become willing to accept that call to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Obedience unto death, even death on the cross. For Paul, the death of Christ upon the cross involved something much more than simply the loss of life. What he is explicating for the Philippians is that there at the cross, Jesus turned death inside out, upside down. He didn't lose his life. He gave his life freely and fully. Death is usually when humans lose the life. He made it the occasion for giving his life. He transformed death into a gift, into a prayer, as Pope Benedict recently put it, indeed, into a sacrifice. This is something that requires us to move beyond the natural and the empirical and to accept the supernatural and the spiritual graces the Holy Spirit offers. Why? Because it is an event that no follower of Jesus would have understood easily. Let me just pause for a minute and say that if we were Jewish Christians following Jesus along with the disciples and we happened to be there at Golgotha, we would testify as witnesses to a Roman execution. But no Jew there at Calvary could have possibly interpreted that event as a sacrifice, the way we as Christians, especially Catholic Christians, are habituated to do. Why? Because it was simply a Roman execution. Now, if you believed in him, you might have described it as a martyrdom, but it couldn't possibly be described as a sacrifice. And why? For the simple fact that it occurred outside of Jerusalem, not inside the walled city. It occurred outside the temple. There were no altars and certainly no priests officiating at a sacrificial liturgy. And so how in the world could you construe the death of Jesus on Calvary as a sacrifice? As we're going to see in just a few minutes, in a few minutes, the, the key for that, for Paul, was the institution of the Eucharist. It's precisely the fact that Jesus was celebrating the old Passover, and in the process of celebrating it, he was fulfilling it and transforming it into the Passover of the new covenant by instituting the Eucharist. Precisely by offering his body as a gift and explaining to the disciples, as he tells us in John's gospel, nobody has the power to take my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it back. Now I suspect that the Roman soldiers who, who executed him would have begged to differ. I think they would have contradicted him and said, yes, we do have the power to take your life and we will do so. But before they ever laid hands on him, he already laid his own hands upon bread and transformed it into his body and then took a chalice and transformed that into the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. This sacrificial language that you find in the institution of the Holy Eucharist is what gradually worked on the minds of the apostles to help them to understand that Calvary was the completion of the Eucharistic sacrifice. It is the Eucharist that transforms Calvary into a true and holy sacrifice. And this also worked in the mind and the heart 
of Paul. Suddenly, the resurrection of Jesus' body is more than a resuscitation of the corpse of an innocent man, more than the vindication of someone claiming to be Israel's Messiah. This is, as Wright puts it, an endorsement of Christ's interpretation of what equality with God really means. It is to make your life a gift of love, and that's precisely the inner logic of his sacrifice. And so let's consider now the third area. We've already touched upon his call and conversion, as well as the word of the cross, Christ crucified. Let's consider for a few moments how Paul came to rethink the body of Christ. It certainly began on the Damascus Road, when he saw the bright light and heard the loud voice from heaven, asking him what? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my followers? No, that's not what he was asked. It was, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? To which he replied, who are you, Lord? So he knew that the origin of the heavenly voice was the Lord, the God of Israel. But he couldn't understand why this Lord, who was obviously Jesus, seemed to take it so personally that Saul, persecuting his followers, was taken to be a persecution of Jesus himself. This is a vivid awakening indeed. And yet, what it shows Paul, who had not ever seen the resurrected body of Jesus, was that in fact the gospel was true, that he was no longer dead, he was alive, and he was no longer alive on earth, but living in heavenly glory, as the Lord of glory. And so the resurrection had as its trajectory this heavenly enthronement. And this resurrected Lord, whose body spoke to him, was the one who was to enlighten him as to the fulfillment of God's saving plan. But more, Paul had to be, win uh, Paul had to be wondering as he prepared for baptism, as the scales fell from his eyes, as he was illumined by this new covenant sacrament. He had to be thinking for days, weeks, months, and possibly years exactly how is it that Jesus speaks of the church as his body. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What is it that causes the church to be so closely and radically identified with Christ? Now, we are conditioned to hear and to think of the church as what? The body of Christ. But it's significant that you can look throughout the first century, but you will not find a single Christian writer, apart from Paul, ever to refer to the church as the body of Christ. He is the only one. And then in the second century, St. Cyprian and many others pick up on that theme and develop it considerably more than even Paul did. But what is it that caused Paul to identify the church as the body of Christ? Certainly the origin of that insight was what was given as the grace of his calling and conversion on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? But as we look in his writings, what we find in his earliest epistles, especially 1 Corinthians, is a highly developed treatment of the church as the body of Christ, especially as we turn to chapters 10, 11, and 12 in 1 Corinthians. But I want to read to you where it is that Paul first introduces this notion of the church as the body of Christ about which we have heard so much. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, the bread which we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? 
Because there is one bread, we who are many are what? One body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, what is he referring to? Did the Corinthian church just bake a very large loaf each Sunday morning to prepare for the Lord's Day? Hardly. The one bread is the Eucharistic Lord. But notice that this is where he introduces in his earliest writings the notion of the church as the body of Christ, but only after introducing the notion of the Eucharistic body of Christ. The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The Greek word koinonia. Because there is one bread, the Holy Eucharist, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is what enabled Paul to finish the connection that began on the road to Damascus. Yes, there is a radical unity between Christ in his heavenly body that is resurrected in glory and the church that he had been persecuting. But what is it that makes this radical identification so possible, indeed so real? This is what Paul explains to the Corinthians, the first time he introduces this very central notion of the church as the body of Christ. Christ's resurrected body is in heaven. Christ's Eucharistic body is on earth. Therefore, Christ's ecclesial body is both in heaven and on earth. And that the Holy Spirit, empowering the church through the sacraments, enables Christ to come to us and for us to be raised to him. This is, for us, the legacy of Paul's gospel. It is why even a great Protestant like Professor Richard Hayes at Duke can describe his own experience of reading Paul. In his writings back in the 80s and 90s, Hayes describes how Paul's gospel is misunderstood if it's translated or interpreted in substitutionary terms. Rather, we must understand Paul's gospel in what he calls participationist terms. Christ doesn't obey, suffer, and die as a substitute to exempt us from the hardship of obeying, suffering, and dying. Rather, Christ does it in order to endow us with his spirit, to reproduce in us his own life and love, his own sonship and suffering, his own death and resurrection. This is what leads Professor Hayes to describe Paul's, quote, ecclesiocentric hermeneutic. Far from being individualistic on the one hand or merely Christocentric on the other, Hayes describes that a fair and deep reading of Paul leads to an ecclesiocentric hermeneutic, that is, a church-centered understanding of the gospel, that in the church we have the family that God is fathering, we have the kingdom of his son, we have the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we have something that is not reducible to spiritual individualism but something that Jewish Christians readily embraced as the fulfillment of God's covenantal plan for his family. So we've covered his call and conversion and also the word of the cross and some of the aspects of what Paul speaks of when he refers to the church as the body of Christ, resurrected, Eucharistic, and ecclesial. I'd like to consider, fourthly, how Paul's gospel enshrines the righteousness of God. Because here, too, we find Paul converting. As a Pharisee, he would have understood the righteousness of God in very straightforward terms that we might ourselves recognize. 
Righteousness consists of what? Well, justice. And sure enough, in Hebrew as well as in Greek, the term for justice or righteousness are one and the same. Zedekah in Hebrew, or dikaiosune in Greek, dikaiosis. And so what is the righteousness of God? Well, for any Pharisee, it means God will bless and reward the good, and he'll punish and condemn the evil. And then we see God simply administering justice, righteousness. But once you take a look at the cross and see it through the eyes of Paul, I think we overcome this superficial understanding of God's justice. So often, even Christians tend to think of God's justice and God's mercy as being in a sort of tension, that there's a sort of trade-off, that the more just God is, the less merciful he is, and the more merciful he is, necessarily, the less just he must be. But in fact, there is something of a convergence here that requires the supernatural grace that Paul received in his own conversion. Because for Paul, especially as he writes in Romans and Galatians and in the Corinthian epistles, righteousness needs to be understood not in terms of the Roman courtroom, but in terms of the Hebrew covenant tradition. In which case, righteousness is more than just simply keeping commandments or not keeping them, or God judging you for breaking them or rewarding you for keeping them. Righteousness or justice is defined more specifically as faithfulness to your covenant commitments. Faithfulness to your covenant commitments. For God, then, justice or righteousness is more than simply punishing us for failing to be faithful to our covenant commitments. It is God being faithful to his own covenant commitments. This is something that a number of Protestant scholars have also come to see. And they also recognize the fact that it comes awfully close to the definitions and decrees of the Council of Trent. Because for us to be declared righteous, to be made righteous, is not just a legal fiction. God doesn't indulge in such things. In fact, God cannot indulge in such things. The word of God is too powerful as a creative force. Once God declares someone to be righteous, then that word itself accomplishes the very deed. Just as God said, let there be light when there was only darkness, but once he spoke, that speech act is what brought light into existence out of nothing, and every other creature for that matter. So when God declares us to be righteous, he does what he declares precisely by declaring it, the power of his word accomplishes the divine purpose. But as these Protestant scholars like N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes are seeing, the righteousness of God is not simply punishing or rewarding us for our bad and our good behavior. The righteousness of God applies to God. But it can't be applied to God in a superficial way, as though God's righteousness is reducible to God keeping his own commandments, God being bound to his own law. No, in the covenantal sense, God's righteousness consists in God himself being faithful to his own covenant commitments. And he has not simply committed himself to judging us for breaking the covenant and rewarding us when we keep it. He recognizes that since Adam, we've all broken the covenant. And so he swore a covenant oath to Abraham, a thousand years later to David, swearing to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham and the seed of David. Not on the condition that they are as righteous as Abraham and David, but rather as a reward for Abraham's 
faithful obedience and for David's as well. And so having sworn this covenant oath to bless all the nations through the seed of Abraham and David, God as a father must fulfill his own covenant commitment despite the disobedience of Israel and all of the nations. So in Christ, we find the righteousness of God. God is faithful in keeping his own covenant commitments by overcoming our sin, by making up for what we lack and giving to us all that we need in pouring out the spirit of sonship upon us. Indeed, for Paul, God has found a just way to dispense mercy and a merciful way to administer justice. And the cross is the convergence of these two. For on the cross we see the justice of God, but we also see the mercy of God. But no longer through the lenses of Luther, where God the Father can no longer see his son on the cross, he can only see our sin. And so he releases his wrath upon this scapegoat figure who himself was a willing victim, voluntarily suffering. No, such an act would be itself an injustice. When God the Father looked down from heaven, he didn't see our sin on the cross. He saw his beloved son. And at no time did the humanity of Christ look so lovely as when Christ's filial love led him to give consent to the cross as an expression not of divine wrath, but a revelation of divine love, a love that is living and life-giving. That is the word of the cross. But that also redefines the righteousness of God. Justice and mercy now kiss on the cross. And faithfulness to the covenant is what God initiates. Christ, then, is the one who embodies how God is faithful to the covenant in blessing us even after we have been unfaithful to the covenant. And so now suddenly for Paul, we recognize the importance of the Father sending us the Son for the purpose of giving us the Spirit. Christ is no substitute, but rather a representative. He makes up for what we lack. He gives us what we need. He assumes what is ours, human nature, in order to impart to us what is his, his own divine sonship. But how does he do it? Through the Holy Spirit. By what means do we receive the spirit of divine sonship? According to St. Paul, it is through the sacrament of baptism, as he states very clearly in Romans 6 and also in 1 Corinthians 6 and elsewhere, that we who have been baptized have died with Christ and we have been risen. And he goes on in chapters 7 and 8 there in Romans to explicate the role of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, in Romans 8, which is the central chapter of this grand epistle, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 18 times in just one chapter. And Paul speaks there of how the Father sends the Son for the purpose of giving us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who reproduces in us the sonship of Christ in the new birth of baptism. The Holy Spirit is the one who reproduces in us the filial life and love that gives to us a share in the very righteousness of God. The Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to give consent to obedience and even suffering. And the Holy Spirit is also the one who reproduces in us Jesus' own death and resurrection glory. This section of Romans bears a little consideration. In particular, I want to look at Romans 8, 
verse 15. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. First thing to notice is how the Father sends the Son to give us the spirit of sonship, and that spirit is the one who causes us to cry out, what term? Abba, Father. In first century Jewish culture, that is the term of intimacy. It's like Papa or Daddy. When is the only occasion Jesus ever utters the term Abba, Father, in the four Gospels? In the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying, Abba, Father, take this cup. And then he gives full consent, not to his human will, but to the divine will, to make his life a gift of love even unto death. This is precisely why the Holy Spirit is given to us, so that we can cry, Abba, Father, in our own Gethsemane experiences, and recognize that we are children and as such heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And then Paul adds that unfortunate proviso. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If only he had left that last part out. Because when we hear about what Christ has done on the cross and how he's given to us the Holy Spirit for the purpose of reproducing his own filial life of divine sonship within us in baptism, of nurturing that life through the sacrament of the Eucharist, and of reproducing in us his own faithful obedience to the Father, all of that stirs our hearts. But when we discover that the Holy Spirit is also given for the purpose of reproducing a godlike love that lives and dies in a godlike way, suddenly we realize that the work of Christ doesn't exempt us from suffering, but it endows us with a power to suffer and it endows our suffering with a redemptive value it would never have on its own. But Paul recognizes our reticence. He understands how it is that we resist this requirement, this condition, that we will be glorified provided we suffer with him. In fact, in the very next verse, Paul launches a counter-argument to those who might say, wait a moment, if I have to suffer, then I will surely fail. Verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. So the first argument that Paul launches against those who would protest, he says, it's incomparable. Once you see the glory, you'll be embarrassed by the fact that you were afraid of the suffering. The incomparability of the glory versus the suffering is the first argument. But then the second argument he launches in the next verse or two. Not only is the glory incomparable, greater, incomparably greater than the suffering, but the suffering is itself inescapable. Paul states, For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but of the will of him who subjected it in hope. And he goes on to describe how all of creation has been subjected to futility and how all of creation has been groaning in travail. And so if you're afraid to suffer as the prerequisite to receiving divine glory, then recognize you can run, but you cannot hide. There's nowhere in creation that you can escape suffering. God is the hound of heaven who tracks us down and always gives us ample opportunities to trust his spirit to empower us to live and to love in a godlike way, even unto death. And finally, he addresses the psychological block that we all feel. That is, God, if we have to suffer, you don't understand. When I suffer, I lose my perspective. I can't even pray. 
Paul anticipates the objection. In Romans 8, verse 26, he writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. And he goes on to describe how the Spirit of God knows the mind of God and intercedes for the saints, especially when they face great trials and even death. And so we can offer so many Hail Marys. We can do our novenas. But when it is we face great trials and suffering, far from separating from the love of Christ as it feels, the suffering is precisely what conforms us to Christ by showing us our weakness and allowing the Holy Spirit to transform our sighs and groans that are too deep for words into profounder prayers than anything we can articulate when we're feeling good. And then he concludes with this climactic statement in the very next verse, Indeed, we know that in everything God works for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. But the all things that God works for good is precisely the different kinds of sufferings that we will face in this mortal life of ours. And then he continues to speak of how it is that through these sufferings, the Holy Spirit takes those who are called and conforms them to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This is the work of the Father, through the Son, by means of the Spirit, initiated through the sacrament of baptism, nurtured through the Eucharist and the other sacraments. Christ's own sonship is reproduced in us, his life and his love, his sacrifice and his suffering, and yes, his death and resurrection glory. And so when Paul asks the rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, he doesn't proceed to enumerate sins, which we don't have to worry about because we're saved, and once saved, always saved. He says, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. He doesn't identify seven sins and then insist that they don't separate us from the love of God. No, on the contrary, he identifies seven, very, seven forms of suffering. And these don't separate us from Christ. These are what conform us to Christ. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what we find in Paul's gospel is the righteousness of God the Father, displayed by Christ, reproduced through the Spirit, not apart from the sacraments, but in our lives, beginning as infants and then going all the way to the hour of a holy death. This is what it means for us to live the life of Christ. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me, Paul states in so many different ways. And so it is for us. We have to recognize from our own experience how suffering without love is unendurable. But love without suffering is impossible. As Pope Benedict taught recently at Lourdes, it is precisely the demand of love that causes us to long to give our very lives, to impart our very selves to others that we love. And so suffering without love is unendurable, but love without suffering is impossible. It is precisely Christ's love that turned his suffering into a sacrifice. Contrary to various versions of the gospel that we might hear on the radio or watch a televangelist present on the TV, it is not how much Christ suffered that brings us salvation. It is rather how much Christ loved. 
And it is the love of Christ that is exemplified perfectly on the cross where he is not losing his life, but rather giving his life as a free offering of love to all of us. As St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, Christ's passion was indeed an act of malice on his slayer's part, but on his own it was the sacrifice of one suffering out of charity. Hence it is Christ who is said to have offered this sacrifice, not the executioner's. And so God still uses those who inflict suffering upon us to perfect Christ's life within us. And by means of the Holy Spirit, our suffering refines our charity just as our charity transforms our suffering into a living sacrifice that allows God to have his way in our lives. This is the master story. This is what it means to be made equal with God. This is what it means for us to bear the image and likeness of God. And for Paul, this is also what it means for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Please notice that in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, we not only have the master story of Christ summarized so profoundly by Paul, but in the following two verses, we also have the master plan of the Christian life. I quote Philippians 2, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved... And if Paul is anything, he is a logical thinker and writer. Whenever you see that word, therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. <laughs> he began by saying, since we have this mind of Christ, well, it's not enough to think Christ's thoughts after him. We also have to live Christ's love. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because if it is indeed the life and the love, the sonship and the sacrifice, the death and resurrection of Christ that we must be giving consent to being reproduced in us, then the only reasonable response is fear and trembling. Verse 13 concludes, for God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I had a friend recently tell me that when he read verse 13, he had to wonder, then why is there any need for fear and trembling if we have the assurance that God is at work in us, willing and working for his own good pleasure? Well, I think the only proper response is that the proof that God is at work in us, willing and working for his good pleasure, can only be found in the soul that honestly fears and trembles. Because if it is nothing less than God-like love that we have to live out even unto death, then fearing and trembling in the presence of our weakness is proper. But the assurance comes when God's strength meets us in our point of weakness and how God wills and works for his good pleasure. Paul indeed was called, but also converted. Called to rethink the crucifixion and what equality with God means. Called to rethink the body of Christ. Not only that it was resurrected from the dead, but Eucharistically extended from heaven to earth, so that indeed he was persecuting not just Jesus' followers, but Christ himself. Paul also had to rethink the righteousness of God and move away from the superficial notion that God simply rewards the good and punishes the evil, to see that on the cross, Christ embodies God's righteousness, how God is faithful in keeping his own covenant commitments, as Paul tells the Romans, let God be true, even though every man is a liar. And so it is 
that the Christian life lived with fear and trembling can be lived only because God is willing and working for his good pleasure. But this shows us what true conversion means. And this leads us back to our starting point. He wasn't simply called, he was also converted. But that conversion was not simply a once, a one-time event that happened on the road to Damascus. What Paul teaches us is that conversion is ongoing and ever-deepening. And he doesn't just teach it, he puts it on display in his own life, in his own sufferings, as well as his own epistles. I am impressed especially by his self-description. In three different epistles, you find at the beginning of his apostolic career, then at the midpoint and near the very end, a very profound and developing self-assessment. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul describes himself as the least of the apostles. That's one of his earliest in Ephesians 3, verse 8, near the midpoint of his career, he describes himself as the least of the saints, no longer the least of the apostles. But near the very end, when he's about to receive the crown of martyrdom, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15 that he now regards himself as the chief of all sinners. He doesn't use the past tense to describe his life as a former Pharisee and a persecutor of the church, he looks at himself in the light of Christ and anticipating the similar words of St. Francis of Assisi, he shows us what it means for human weakness to embrace divine strength. And I'm assured that he would have passed a polygraph when he said, I am the chief of all sinners. I'm reminded of a statement once mismade by an archabbot. I have the privilege of teaching at St. Vincent's Seminary where I was invited to teach by Archabbot Douglas Nowicki. As many of you know, in the Benedictine tradition, you have abbots over abbeys and then archabbots over archabbeys. And the St. Vincent Archabbey is the largest Benedictine monastery in the world and a great seminary for me to teach. One of the predecessors to Archabbot Douglas was a man named Archabbot Egbert. I'm not sure who gave him that name. But Archabbot Egbert was greatly beloved. But he was also known for misspeaking, malaprops. He would often misspeak and hardly ever notice. And there is a sort of unofficial archivist there at St. Vincent's. Uh, Father Mark has told me dozens of stories of how Archabbot Egbert misspoke on occasion. But of all the stories he told me, my favorite occurred at the end of Mass. It was a, a solemn occasion with many dignitaries present, including a few bishops and archbishops up there at the altar. And he turned at the end of the Mass, and he said, without noticing a thing, this ass is mended, let us go in peace. <laughs> a bishop leaned over and inadvertently spoke right into his mic and said, truer words were never spoken. <laughs> well, Paul gives us assurance that no matter how willful and stubborn we may be, God, the Father, has sent his Son to give us the Holy Spirit to mend us and to heal us and to divinize us. Thank you very much.